Hello everyone and welcome to Luke Lore, a quick deep dive into a folklore topic where I share some of the stories from around the world that have piqued my interest. Today is a bonus exciting episode as we have a co-host for Halloween, Amon Mazingo of the Afro Tales podcast. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate it so much. No, it was pretty exciting because um, you got in touch and said, hey, let's do a collab. And that was like, yes, obviously. And then um, <laughs> when we do a Halloween special, I think this is basically how I started. Wait, no, I started ranting about Wendigo, but the, the Halloween special was like where I really picked up and took off. And favorite time of the year, I am just that weird. And now here we are doing something extra big and special for the listeners. Yes, yes. Which is funny because this... This was not originally my favorite time of the year growing up. It was Christmas, a whole religious background. But as I've gotten older and done so much more research, this has now become my favorite time of year. The supernatural, the fae. Let's not talk about them. Um, (laughs) The supernatural aspect of everything and then the folklore and tales that come with it has created such a wonderful experience and i love this time of time of year now it's awesome i've had a weird like reverse of that where like halloween was always huge to me christmas i like my presents but my mum came me out of bed sleep came first then presents then food but like i was like halloween was the big one because like you didn't have to open the morning for halloween halloween happened at night that was great for me i've always been a night owl but as I've been researching Christmas and Yulemore, I found so many Christmas monsters. The native Europeans were just bonkers and they love dark yeah. and terrifying things. So like you've got, Iceland's got the Yule cat, which is nice and simple. It's a Christmas kaiju, it's a giant cat, and it will kill children that aren't wearing the new Christmas clothes. Your parents too stingy to give you Christmas clothes? Yule cat will get you. You're an ungrateful little sod that won't wear your new Christmas clothes? Yule cat will get you. Why? <laughs> Why punish the... Why punish me for not wearing my new clothes? My mom... Punish my parents, not me. <laughs> that is so mean. Is so... And yet I weirdly love it. Oh, that's crazy. That is mean. So... This is my fourth Halloween special now, and I've covered a fair amount of ground, but a quick overview of the holiday won't go amiss between having a guest on, as well as this being an entry in my Pagan Wheel of the Year series for 2022. It's both Celtic and Gallic, so it's shared across pre-Roman Britain factions. It looks like it's spelt as Samhain, but it's pronounced Samhain, as the native languages of Albion aggressively resist English. My first Halloween special, which was popped up as something as a lost episode not in my official count, had me pronouncing it Sam Hain all the way through. No one has yelled at me over that just yet, but the evidence is there forever now. Pagan Britain had a different view of where the cycle of life and death to mark the beginning. The Celtic day began and ended at sundown, and Samhain is the beginning of the Celtic New Year. For the most part, modern civilization sees the start of light and life as a new beginning, so spring and after midnight as the darkness starts to shorten are our conventional ideas of new starts. The vaguely Roman New Year is after we've crossed the lowest point of the Northern Hemisphere, and the spring equinox on April 1st is the start of the new year for the Hindu calendar and the old Christian Julian calendar. But there's a more dreary view to the ancient Britons, which frankly seems to have stuck around in the background of the culture, that the dark rising and the dying of the land is when the new beginning truly starts. From death comes the clean slate for the new life later. But the tipping point of light and life is the reset to zero. Samhain is the final harvest. All late crops and fruit need rounding up, ready for the winter to come. The spiritual side of the holiday is the idea that the time the barrier between worlds is at its thinnest. The living world intersects in an ultimate fulcrum of liminality. The assorted underworlds and other worlds can all cross over into the mundane. The dead, and the other, can visit, especially in the night. Apples are everywhere as part of Samhain, they're a massively significant crop for the last harvest, so this is where the bobbing and ducking for apples came from, as well as all the assorted candied apple treats. It was the last year I went into detail about the puka, a furry creature used to warn children away from apples after the final harvest. These Aos she creatures, being of the other world, are said to lay claim to all apples that went uncollected by the right time. What is left is puka spoiled and unsafe, a story to keep children safe from eating apples that are no longer good. 
but are deceptively good enough up until the point they turn your gut. So this special night, as light and life tips over the edge into dark and death, is a time for celebration. The Yule Feast is pretty easily argued to be more significant, that being a midwinter blowout of food that won't keep, in a feast that could well be the last time you see some friends and family members, but as a traditional last harvest until the old tribes hit Imbolc's new life in February, it was a creative celebration of preserved food and these last crops. So, the apple's everywhere again. It's one of the four Celtic bonfire rituals, something that is still seen as part of celebrations today. Guising was always a tradition, so dressing up in fantastical costumes to hide yourself from those things abroad in the thinnest night which are not plain dress-up. It was also a powerful time for divination. If you are brave or stupid enough to risk meddling with the veil between worlds, time and space are the easiest to poke holes in if you don't mind what might be looking back at you from the beyond. There's also the slightly unnerving tradition of the dumb supper. A feast where all participants must remain silent, as it's a meal the dead are invited to, and while welcome at the table, they should not be acknowledged or engaged in conversation. A lot of what the world enjoys about Halloween is a defiant continuation of traditions from before the modern era, something invaders not only failed to stamp out, but were themselves affected by the celebration, despite their worst intentions to the contrary. I see it as nothing but a good thing. I may be biased, being both a Brit wedged between Ireland, Wales, and Scotland, where the pagan undercurrent endured the most, as well as being a horror nerd who demands spooky ascendancy anywhere I can get it, but it's kind of nice to have 5,000 or so years worth of oral traditions escape out into the world for everyone to participate in. Very interesting. The bobbing, especially the bobbing for apples thing, I had no idea that that's where that came from. But it makes sense for it to be something from a pagan ritual since most things we do in the world today are definitely from a pagan um, uh, ritual, which, can I be honest, I hate the word pagan um, for the simple fact that everything that's not part of the Abrahamic religion basically is considered pagan in the world today. And it's always just bothered me to look at it like that because many of these cultures had their spirituality millions of years before you know the the big three came about and just because they took over now everything that is not part of them is or everything that they don't like is considered pagan that's that's just i'm sorry let me get off my soapbox about that <laughs> well no you're not wrong i mean part of it is like it's a reclaimed word so before pagan was what was yelled before the fires were stoked and someone's thrown on it and also Sometimes the names for these traditions are lost, so pagan is the only way you can really go, we've got this scrap of a belief, we found it, we've got it, we don't know quite what it is. Right, right, pagan. right. Yeah, because um, for me, I've gotten in more into um, Vodun and and the different, um, the, well, the Ifa religion from um, West Africa a lot more, and to see it, and what it does and in, in, in its belief systems in the uh, um, what would be considered demonic by the Christian. And it's like, well, this is actually a good thing because we do this all the time. We talk to, you know, our ancestors. We, we, we do that as um, Christians and uh, Muslims, when they say, oh, oh um, grandma that passed away, please help me you know, with this, talk to God about this for me. Well, who who else are you talking to besides, you know, ancestor veneration from that, which is what vo um, voodoo or voodoo is all about anyway. So I, I, I can definitely completely understand uh, the love for um, getting back in touch with the pagan side of uh, life. Yeah, it comes from, a, to be demonized is from a very different idea of good and evil. It's a case of, like, the in-group and the out-group, and the in-group is what is correct, and the out-group is to be disregarded. It's not actually being judged on its own merits, it's being judged mm -hmm. on being different. And, and, and to see how they have taken certain things and implemented them into Christianity and things like that from the pagans side and be like, well, we like this, this, this will work for us. Cause this can bring in people from that side and then say, well, you know what? We don't like this. So we'll, we'll, we'll demonize that and, 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 and 
get you guys to start hating that and everything like that. And it's, it's interesting how people can manipulate, you know, things like that. And to see a revival of getting into, you know, people get in touch with their roots and what their culture did before um, they were, their culture was demonetized, uh, demonized by the in crowd, as you said, is is fascinating. I, I love it. 2022 has been that entire journey for me, doing all these pagan wheel of the year points and all these old holidays, and also just being a menace around Valentine's Day. I don't know if you ever spotted that one, but I did werewolves mm-hmm. for valentine's and i found the pagan festival that valentine's papered over and it was lupercalia yeah it was where roman men would get drunk dress as wolves and then rampage through the streets um whipping women on their butts <laughs> as a fertility um right so like everything you find these holidays that have endured there is the new um, modern interpretations of it, but then you go a bit further backwards, and everyone was having the mm-hmm. times of their lives. Yeah, that, the way you found that is the same is the same way I found out about Santanalia, and I was like, "This is Christmas. <laughs> this is Roman Christmas. Wow, this is <laughs> everything against what <laughs> the in crowd says you're supposed to be doing. They're doing the exact opposite, and they're loving it. They're just they're, they're living life, and and I was like, that's I'll, every every time the holiday comes around, I'm like, happy Saturnalia, uh, enjoy this time, and get nasty, <laughs> just get nasty. I don't care, have fun. <laughs> Those midwinter feasts, they were about being defiant against dying. Like, this is the last time that we might be able to live it up, and we're gonna. Mm-hmm. And which is interesting because most people don't think about why the uh, midwinter feast and, and, and the, uh, like the uh, Samhain is here. This holiday, this, this season was life or death. If you didn't get a good harvest, your family might not make it through the whole the village the the whole community might not make it through so yeah you got to live it up because this could be your last winter ever yeah i mean you've got to think this in europe was like thousands of years without sugar how do you think you're preserving stuff without sugar without refrigerators without climate control, it's a case of you had to make do and just pray that something out there was on your side. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, really. Because, I mean, then you have to be like, well, I guess we got to go try to hunt whatever's out there that is still moving around in the wintertime, and there's not much. There really isn't much. And with especially for you guys living on an island <laughs> it's not like you say well okay well let's just go across to the mainland and, and and do some hunting over there no it's it's whatever's here on this island is is what we got and the whole island is pretty much freezing over it <laughs> yeah it's an incredibly miserable island at the best of times get to the worst of times you're in trouble yeah I, <laughs> my partner she wants to she wants to let's move north where it's cold and snows and i'm like no. Why would I want to go somewhere <laughs> where everything just freezes over? And not only just the food aspect, warmth is hard to get a hold of. Like when we had that freeze down here in Texas, it like it showed her. She was like, I don't know if I really want to move all the way up north anymore. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is what you have to deal with. <laughs> your your heat probably going out. If you don't have a generator, you're like, yeah, you can go. Let's go to move move to Wisconsin. Yeah, okay. And what happens when when we don't have any heat? This is what it's going to feel like. It's going to be tough. Get the fireplace. You better make sure you got the firewood because uh, we're not going to make it if we don't. Yeah, you're going from winter being less hot to winter being. Oh, everything's dead. Don't go outside or you're going to join it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's, people down here in the, in, in the South do not understand what winter really is. Like today, it was, <laughs> I woke up, it was uh, 40 degrees, 40, 50 degrees. It got up to like 69. It was like, it's cold. I'm like, no, it's not. This is this is nothing. This is not cold. <laughs> we have barely we have barely seen any kind of fall. It's still summertime basically for us. 
and it's going to go back up to the 80s next in a few days. That does sound like a British summer. The two days of sunshine you get over here. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't actually can't wait till I get over there. I really want to get there so bad. Um, as I've been telling my partner like crazy. I'm like, I, I, I want to go to England. I want to go to Ireland. I want to go to Scotland. I, I just, I just do. And like, I drink a lot of Scottish whiskey, so I, I really want to go over there taste the uh, taste it when it's fresher than when it gets all the way over here. Oh, you um. All of the breweries do incredible um, tourist runs. They'll take you through the distillery and let you taste all the different things. It's like, this is barrel age. This is this age. Here, have a taste of this. Have a taste of this. You'll be dragged out by the Scottish at the end of it, and they'll be proud you're not standing. (laughs) Yeah, I actually watched a uh, documentary about it. Um, uh, um, I forgot what it's called. It's on Hulu. And it was... um, about the uh uh they they did the whole tour it was the two guys that did the show outlander so the the older guy and the main guy they did a tour through um scotland and 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 they went to um, a couple breweries while they were there um to the point where they were you know harvesting the peat and everything and showing the whole process and it, it just looked awesome to me and i was like oh i want to do that so bad well, maybe not the work but i just want to taste it uh, we'll come back to the booze at the end of the episode let's move on to the next section with the legend of sleepy hollow and this one's on you am all right i have the legend of sleepy hollow and i also have a little bonus information at the end of this so here we go as far as i kind of ghost go it's hard to find many as instantly recognizable as Washington Irving's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Irving was one of the first internationally recognized American authors, having a veritable who's who of literary contemporaries who admired him. This includes Lord Byron, Mary Shelley, and Charles Dickens, to name a few. While there's a fair chance people will also have heard of Rip Van Winkle. It's Sleepy Hollow that is easily the best known story. It's a great pick for the Halloween treat, being steeped in imagery and folklore surrounding the holiday. The inspiration for the story came from a real Sleepy Hollow in the New York State. The name of the hollow is uh, Elmsworth, New York, if you ever want to visit. Irving, um, living in as a young man in the nearby Terrytown, spent his whole life looking for stories. Many ghost stories of the Dutch settlers in the area clearly had an influence upon him when he was sent to the region to avoid the outbreak of the yellow fever around the age of 15. The festive influence are hardly subtle. The flaming pumpkin the Hellish Horseman uses instead of his own head for one is quite literally and on the nose reference, given that Ichabod Crane gets in the head with it. But there's more of a Samhain connection as the ghost stories that unnerve the protagonists are told to him in the late Harvest Festival. Modern retellings lean heavily into the supernatural elements of the original story, which, to be fair, are the standout fun parts. Although there's a strong chance that the tale was more Scooby-Doo than Tim Burton's vision of Sleepy Hollow, which was okay, the strong implication of the short story being the Ichabod's rival in love, Brom Bones, made use of the story to chase away the competition for Katerina Van Tessel's hand in marriage is obvious. Multiple iterations across the 200-plus years since publication have enjoyed the setting more than the twist ending. And the Halloween hijinks is what has endured in the minds of successful um, generations. There's also more to this than a simple, strong branding. There was apparently a real-life inspiration for the horsemen. With an already existing folktale, Irving made use of. An alternative name for this specific version of the spook is the Headless Hessian of the Hollow. So the story goes, 
that most people know. During the Revolutionary War, in the run-up to Halloween, a German auxiliary soldier, a Hessian, to the British side, came to a spectacular, if not ignoble, end. Cannon fire claimed a lot of lives in the Revolutionary War, but it was quite rare for a single target to be hit in the head by one. Cannons typically being light artillery and not a sniping weapon. But this poor soul was hit by this one in a million shot while on horseback. Being very visibly decapitated ahead of the British side being routed. While his comrades dragged his body away, his head was very unrecoverable. Given the impact here, parts of it probably weren't even still in the same battlefield. An unnamed Hessian was buried at the old Dutch church of Sleepy Hollow. And so the ghost story goes, he rose from the grave next Halloween, furious. He was buried without his head. He picked up a jack-o'-lantern as a temporary replacement, acquired a horse somehow, and rode out in search of his missing body part. Given how his head was lost, there's no story where the enraged revenant is ever reunited with what was now most likely a fine paste coating a lost cannonball. So it is said to go. Each Halloween, the specter will ride again. A new carved pumpkin used each year as part of a futile search to be whole once more. Now, there's a little extra to this story. If you go to the old Dutch church, there used to be a man that would give you the uh, tour of the grounds. According to him, Cornelia and Elizabeth Van Tassel of Elmsworth, New York, lived there. The British would raid the towns as they went along, led by a man by the name of Burnham Up Charlie. I shouldn't even have to explain as to why they called him Burnham Up Charlie. Well, one of the Hessians went into the house to do the raid and found a baby in a crib. And instead of leaving the baby there to be burned up, he took it out, put it out by the barn. Well, Elizabeth later came after the house was burning and tried to get in. Well, that Hessian grabbed her and took her to where her baby was. And because she was so pleased at what he did, instead of really knowing who the man was, he saw the uniform. So when the headless Hessian was brought back to the old Dutch cemetery, she was the main person that insisted he be buried and given a good Christian burial. Thus beginning the headless horseman's ride and story. Ah, oh, that extra detail, it really explains why he was given the proper burial as well, instead of just being thrown into a lake with some rocks time for being the invader. <laughs> right, because he could have very well have just been looked at as, as another dead person, and especially since he was an enemy. I thought that that little bit, for me, humanized the Hessian in the story. And I don't recall, I don't remember when Washington Irving learned about the story, or how old he might have been when he, you know, first heard it, and how it had been passed down. But I find it interesting that just from the revolution to him, the story had grown to to such spectacularness in 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 such a short time, and it's continued ever since then. I I wonder how they told that story back when he was young in that in that small um hollow that's it's an interesting thing yeah because what he seems to take from it is oh crap headless horseman whereas there is this layer of tragedy to it as well yeah i was interested in, um mostly in the fact that it just goes to show that just because it's a time of war doesn't mean you have to be heartless and for him to show that much you know, care to say, 
I'm not letting this child die because that's not what I came over here to do is let kids die or to kill kids. And he decides, no, I'm going to save this child. I'm going to put it over to the side and I'm going to make sure that this woman knows her her um, her child is, is, is alive and, and good to go. And then the other part is, what is up with somebody having the nickname Burn em Up Charlie? <laughs> like, <laughs> That's the true villain of this story. <laughs> it is. Like, sir, I, I understand the whole scores to earth idea, but you don't take in, obviously you don't take in regard of any kind of life. He just didn't want nothing. Nobody is supposed to have a home. No, And if there's people stuck in there, oh, well. We'll we'll just let them go with it. That's crazy. Yeah, no prisoners, only kindling. It ain't a good way to approach life. No, <laughs> it's not. And I kind of want to know what happened to Burnham of Charlie. <laughs> like, I'm hoping that he was set on fire with his own like, paraphernalia. Really, just going off like this impression of him. Yeah, I I, I really hope so. That, that that is definitely something that needs to. Uh, that should have happened to him. Hopefully he did. You know what's weirdly <laughs> sweet of the whole thing, though? Is that we've got this Hessian horseman, and he did a, such a good deed, it's why he got buried. People still talk about him, and in a, even a strange way, revere him for centuries later, even if it is part of like a Halloween fun tradition. He's never been forgotten. Yeah, it's it's interesting because when you hear the the story of the Hellas Horseman, it's meant to put fear into you. But if you really think about the story, yeah, he's mad, but anybody would be mad if they got their head blown off. Like I would be very upset if I had my head blown off, or at least I cannot be buried whole. So he's not really trying to hurt anybody in particular. He's just out looking for what is him. He's just, you know, looking for self. And he's probably still in shock beyond the grave that he got hit by that one in a million decapitation shot. He's just like rolling around the countryside screaming, really? <laughs> I can't believe this. I just came over here for some money. This they just hired me. I I don't even care about this. <laughs> and I get my head blown off. Why Burnham Up couldn't get his head blown off? Why me? <laughs> yeah, you, you can see he's got something of a point. <laughs> like, you gotta be very mad about that. Like you got Burnham Up over here that's that, that's willing to burn down anything and everything. He doesn't care about a single thing. I'm just over here just doing a job, and. He, he he walks away from this, and I and and, and I, I'm headless now. Like that's that's not fair. Burn him up, Charlie. Went home and retired in a giant like countryside manse. I'm over here with a pumpkin for a head. <laughs> and you know what though? At least by the time this this story comes about, we're not using turnips or, or turnips anymore. <laughs> <laughs> the jack-o'-lantern. There's, there's always like, worse. Have you seen a traditional jack-o'-lantern? They're horrendous. <laughs> I actually love them. Like once I found out what the, what a traditional jack-o'-lantern was, I said, "Oh, my partner hates it." She's, oh, you, that thing is so ugly. Yes, it is. <laughs> I want to give a quick shout out for a friend of the show, the Blue Paint Society. Founded in 2014, the Blue Pint Society is dedicated to raising awareness for testicular cancer. It can feel a little awkward to discuss, making the disease a killer that can go unnoticed, but being modest isn't worth the world losing you, and the Blue Pint Society seek to make the subject much more approachable so people can feel secure and getting checked if they need to. There are welcoming and fun Facebook and Instagram socials to get involved with, an ongoing active involvement in the Arizona beer community, frequent events for people to join in on, and some brilliant merchandise on their website, www.bluepintsociety.com, to help support the cause in style. Feel free to pop over on social media to check them out, and tell them you heard about the Society on Luke Law. Okay, we've got a slightly funky one next. It's the, um, the Witches from Macbeth, so I'll do the uh, read from it, and then I'll explain. Like, we've already talked about culturally weird all of this uh, like, transition is. I've got some really cool stuff to run down about witches and the terrifying sounding ingredients in this cauldron. 
Right then. Round about the cauldron go, in the poisoned entrails throw, toad that under cold stone days and nights has thirty-one. Sweated venom sleeping got, boil foul first i the charm pot. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. Fill it of a fenny snake, in the cauldron boil and bake. Eye of newt and toe of frog, wool of bat and tongue of orc and blind worm sting. Lizard's leg and owlet's wing, for a charm of powerful trouble, like a hell broth, boil and bubble. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. Scale of dragon, tooth of wolf, witch's mummy, moor and gulf, of the ravined salt sea shark, root of hemlock, digged in the dark, liver of a blaspheming Jew, gall of goat and slips of yew, silvered in the moon's eclipse, nose of Turk and Tartar's lips, finger of birth strangled babe, ditch delivered by a drab, make the gruel thick and slab, and the tukas hot holdren, for the ingredients of our cauldron, Double, double, toil and trouble, fire, burn and cauldron bubble. Cool it with a baboon's blood, then the charm is firm and good. Witches of Macbeth are pretty powerful archetypes at this point. Not that Shakespeare is absorbed, but while a small part of the Scottish play, the imagery he shared has helped shape the popular perception of witches for centuries. More a mysterious menace than caricature villains, the cauldron sounds more than a little worrying, but there are some additional details to consider here. For starters, a traditional witch's brew was less potion and more actual brew. A lot of the iconography of a witch we know today came from the profession of a local brewer. The cauldron was for literal brewing, of assorted ales and meads, as well as traditional botanical beverages. The pointed hat was to stand out at markets. The broomstick was a symbol of the trade that was a mark of cleanliness and hygiene. Even the thick black dress was likely to survive an errant cauldron tipping over. The demonization of women in brewing roles came from the ascendancy of the Christian church. Monks took over the trade, with a change in focus from servicing the community to promoting abstinence, which what we can politely be referred to as a deliberate focus on inducing droop among men. When it came to the herb craft of local wiser men and cunning folk, the ingredients aren't quite as worrying as they may first seem. The witch's cauldron seen from Macbeth uses some alarming names, which are also alternative to such things as mustard seeds, buttercup buds, and moss. Dandelion petals were also known as lion's tooth. Eye of newt is another name for mustard seeds. Bat's wing is holly leaves. Something as awful sounding as blood of Hestia is chamomile of all things, best known as a soothing tea ingredient. While used for dramatic effect by Shakespeare, and also likely demonised by the church again, because what wasn't if a woman was doing it, it was also an authentic secret language used among hedge witches and village apothecaries. There are some spectacular ones out there you would never want adding to a herbal remedy going off the secret names alone. Semen of Uries, Serpent's Tongue, Nosebleed, and Scale of Dragon, for example, are White Clover, Dog's Tooth Violet, Yarrow, and Tarragon, respectively. There really were grim ingredients related to witchcraft out there, though. Body parts, exhumed corpses, bonus grizzly bits picked up from the butcher for burning and rituals instead of going in the stew pot. But they weren't commonly used by witches themselves. They were used by the so-called good people opposing them. The disgusting rituals were used to counter witches and their godless flower-based potions. It's something of a split in morality over the ages that the gruesome stuff was considered good and necessary to defeat an enemy made of traditional healers with funky pantry labels. There was almost certainly black magic out there in the quiet hamlets and isolated, and isolated cottages of the countryside, which is where we get such things as our hand of glory, but a lot of what became the spooky trappings and stereotypes of witches was weirdly harmless. Now, <laughs> the, the code names, that is interesting. I'm thinking, you know, I am Newt, really an I am Newt, not a mustard seed. Why a mustard seed? It was a secret language that kept their um, trade secrets, but they could share with each other quickly and easily, and you'd label it with all this weird stuff, so like, ain't no one stealing your semen of Ares. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, you, you, you are right about that. I wonder what that was making, that recipe that's in the, uh, um, in the play. What exactly, if you put all of those, if, if somebody yeah, tried I mean, to do okay, that, like, uh, what would that recipe actually be? Like, Scale of Dragon was in there, and Scale of Dragon is tarragon. It sounds like they're just making some sort of soup on the winter moss. 
<laughs> and which would make perfect sense, especially uh, if it's in uh, this time of year. It's getting cold. Depending on how it, it, it's, it might be some easy things for them to gather and uh, soup or broth for them. They could probably keep it for a long time and use it for cooking other things to uh, throughout the winter. So, yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Adds some incredible subtext because Macbeth then is this mad king who was intimidated by these old women just having a laugh, yelling out their secret names for the ingredients. <laughs> and then this entire terrible <laughs> sequence of events was put together because of some um, old women messing with this mad king on a path. Right, right. It's like, oh, we can mess with this guy right here. Look at him, look at him. Um, yeah, we're going to use the code names for this. This guy's an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't wrong. <laughs> they weren't wrong. They were not wrong. They were, he was definitely an idiot. Um, yeah, growing up uh, in English class, and they always want to do, well, you have to do Shakespeare growing up. And I dreaded Shakespeare so much. I hated doing his sonnets and everything. And it was like, in, in, in every English class wanted you to do it. They always wanted to pick something. Um, and it was normally Hamlet, which is an, another great spooky story. But um, yeah, I just, I, I, I even try to watch the, the movie for Macbeth. And I just, I, I can't get, I can't get past his, you did a great job reading it because I cannot get past the um the speech pattern and and the words they the use iambic pentameter yes yes <laughs> you can tell when that, that part of that part of uh, my schooling i did not pay close attention to but i love the I, 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 I did love the witches i have a weird bugbear about like schools and shakespeare because shakespeare's plays were rude, crude, rowdy, and fun entertainment, but they've been put through an academic film to make them as tragically boring as possible and to just throw children as far away from these great old stories as possible. It's like, no, you don't make it, it boring. You, yeah, you need to sit the kids down and go, children, here is every word in this play that Shakespeare made up. And then you've got the kids on board. You need to make it as fun as it was supposed yes. to be. I was watching a documentary about Shakespeare's plays and they were talking about, they were trying to uh, read it in the way that it would have been said back then. Because a lot of the words that we use today aren't the, the, the correct words and not in the correct dialect of, of Shakespeare. And I remember on the documentary, they said Shakespeare probably sounded more like a pirate <laughs> than, than a, a proper English gentleman, you know? And it's like, okay, now some things are starting to make sense, especially, on, especially like you said, how raunchy and, uh, and wild they were. That yeah, this is, wasn't that, yeah. high art. This was everyone having a laugh. This was people turning up. Like, this is like an open bar cinema. <laughs> everyone was enjoying <laughs> the imagery of the of the of the witches is it was three witches correct yes so he was playing off uh, the witches in the story are supposed to be fate or the the three sisters of of fate from Greek mythology. Yes. But is there a version of that in Celtic mythology also? Oh, absolutely. It's massively significant. So what Shakespeare's more playing with, it's the fates, it's the unholy trinity, so the witching hour is 3 a.m. because they're doing it to spite God. Mm. Well, and all of that, like the in-group saying, look at how important we are. They must be thinking about us all the time. And they're just going, where's me tarragon? But within the actual traditions, this is like you've got the Hecate and you've got this other trinity that relates specifically to womanhood, which is the maiden, the mother, and the crone. That is awesome. It, it reminds me of uh, some other cultures that also have uh, those three 
as the as important. As a matter of fact, just women being the most powerful um, beings in the in the culture and and spiritually, um, the women are always the ones that can talk to the supernatural. They you go you go to them because they're the oracles, and and they they're the ones that can heal you. Like, yeah, that's 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 interesting. I I didn't like I said I did not pay a lot of attention to Shakespeare. Like school Shakespeare is the wrong message at every uh, level. It definitely is. If uh, when my children get there, I'm definitely going to have to have them watch some of the um, Shakespearean movies to get a little bit more. Yeah, the, get a you, better look at it. It's just the approach is this is serious plays for serious people being seriously English when the truth of it is, all right, this is a soap opera with magic. Everything's going to go off and you should be watching it for fun. I have a love for witches. They, um, this is, this is a bit into my family history. I have a cousin that passed away back in the seventies that they thought was a warlock which some people say well he, well he was just a seer either way go he was magical he had a a, a uh, his own grimoire and he was able to predict people's future and everything it, it was it was crazy um and knowing that about him made me really get into uh into witchcraft and and uh the supernatural on on that end and that just reminds me, I went to the um, Renaissance Festival and there were a few girls there dressed like pilgrims or pure Puritans. And I was messing with them. Every time <laughs> I would see them, I would I would start yelling out, witch, witch. <laughs> to be fair, that say, is a I'm just a accurate. Puritan. I'm just a Puritan. <laughs> Woman, like, blame them for witch, something. Burner. <laughs> Right. Right. It's a woman. <laughs> She's sitting down. She did I can see her ankle. These impure thoughts are both but all entirely her and not me. Yeah, that's it was <laughs> And that was that, that's and that's so sad. It's so sickening to think about like I said, th- these women were Definitely, just like I said, cooking up some broth, some, some stew, and some man came along and said, "They're a witch. They're witches. They're evil. They're, they're this and that." It's like I'm just, <laughs> I'm just cooking here, just, just having some dinner. <laughs> if you do follow What's that reading, they definitely mess with him afterwards. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I may not have read all through it, but I, I, I know the story. Um, through just osmosis, I guess, uh, you know, over the years, I've, I've learned the story of about Macbeth and and what the type of things that happened. And yeah, they definitely, <laughs> yeah. they definitely messed don't his come head at up. the grandmas. The grandmas he will was, win. Most definitely, you, you you don't mess with it with, with grandma. She she she's been around too long, and she knows. Everything that's going, especially back then, in in, in those neighborhoods, uh, those small little towns, she's seen what everybody, and she just sits back there and just looks, you know, when people people say she 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 knows things she shouldn't know. Well, that's because she just sits and watches you guys, and you guys just do everything in front of her, thinking well, she's just some old woman. Like, no, she she knows what's going on. I absolutely love the deconstruction that Terry Pratchett did of this for his Discworld books. The book Weird Sisters is basically Macbeth from the perspective of the witches. The whole thing with like his witches in there, they call him the maid and the mother and the other one because you don't want to call the crone the crone because it'll make her angry and she's the crone. <laughs> exactly. Why would you? Why would you call? First of all, you think this is? You think they have magical powers? You think they can do all of this uh, evil stuff? And then you call her a crone? Uh, that just that's, <laughs> that's it's just that doesn't sound too smart. It just <laughs> now they oh, are yeah. everybody's favorite thing to be for Halloween. 
yeah, it's so weird. It's like the headless horseman again. Is like he if, if you if you're gonna like put these like folklore in the context of honoring ancestors, that man who saved that baby is immortal. And now we have the witch's iconography that was attempted to be demonized. That attempt at demonization has kept the brand alive through millennia. And now we're here going, oh, hang on, that was good, actually. And we have it all there because they tried so hard. It was like an historical Streisand effect. It's like, witches are bad. Why? Because, they oh, they are. And then <laughs> they've just stuck around forever. <laughs> Yeah, they really are. They, 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 when, when you think of anything witch-related, I mean, just the ability to take these herbs, this this stuff that just grows in the wild, put it together, and make you feel better. It's like, yeah, that's that's awesome. Like, why wouldn't you want that person around in your neighborhood? Like, and. We know about the witch hunts and everything like that, and because it's always which never made sense. You're going after the person who everybody goes to to be healed. Like this is your doctor. Like if you if we started going after doctors and and and, and saying we're burning all doctors at the stake, people would look at you like are. <laughs> You stupid? Like, why would you do that? Well, that's what you guys did to quote unquote witches in the, back in the day. Like, like you just burned with people your healthcare. Yeah, it's like we're gonna burn you, but first, can I have a new prescription out? <laughs> I, I, I have this boil. Can you get rid of it? You're a witch. You shouldn't be able to get rid of it. Like, wait, what? What are you? <laughs> Back in my day, we just died. This is unnatural. <laughs> I stubbed my toe. I'm about to die. You know, if you just put it up and and, and you know rest for a little while, it it'll get better. Which <laughs> you shouldn't be able to heal. Like, like if you're anxious, you can go and get a blood of Hestia potion. Chamomile tea. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And like, as, as soon as you said that, I was like, you got to be kidding me. Chamomile. <laughs> I have some of that in <laughs> You're a witch. You've got these dried blood of Hestia that you'll revive with a steeping brew. Witch! Witch sleeping comfortably at night. Back in my day, we stayed awake all night and we're cranky the next day. Wait, so basically they made tea and yes. and, and got called a witch. Like, oh, this is some nice, this is a nice relaxing beverage. You should die for making it. Like, wait, <laughs> what? <laughs> what are you talking about? I mean, think about it. We, we brew tea. You go to supermarket and go down the, where all the um, herbal teas are. That is one big aisle of traditional potions. Yes. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, it is. There are so many teas. I love tea. I, uh, my partner gets, I, I make an English uh, breakfast tea every morning. And she's like, what, what, what is this? I love it. I do not drink coffee. I drink, <laughs> I drink tea every morning. That is how I get up. That's the first three hours of the day. I have a, I have a big uh, uh, one of thirty-two ounce bugs, and that's that's breakfast. It's, I love it. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> but they should be calling me a witch at work. <laughs> oh yeah, you're you're on all the potions, <laughs> but when you're over here. There's loads of tea places. So when you're nursing your hangover from all of these great distilleries, you should go to one of the tea places and just try it. Just you walk into it and the smell hits you. It's amazing. They've got hundreds oh of God. different teas. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much to do. When I went to York on holiday this year, I drank my own body weight in tea and it was a different tea every cup. Oh, Didn't wow. have the same thing twice. It was marvelous. Oh, wow. Especially especially when they get to mixing like you like you have your you know growing up out here we we 
are used to just regular black tea. That's, you know, um, name the brand black tea. As I've gotten older and I started drinking other tea, you know, peppermints and, 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 um, chamomile and we say Which? chamomile out here. Um, <laughs> and like it's it's when you start ex- exploring all of it and then i started buying loose leaf tea and and i could mix teas together and it's like this is an awesome taste right here you you, you can't do this with coffee this this <laughs> you can only do this with tea <laughs> you mix coffee together you've got coffee you mix tea together you've got a new tea Every single time, a new tea. No matter if you use the same ingredients over and over again. That is, yeah. So I'm over here practicing witchcraft. Please don't come looking for me. <laughs> you didn't even realize. I bet the tea's going to hit different. You're going to be playing around with it later and just go, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me get some Ian Newton there. Give me some... <laughs> Put 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 all these little yeah got my tea going. Gonna have a special brew today. With such a food focus from your own folklore explorations, I wanted to get the witches in there and just give you this rundown of what's really going on with the secret language. Oh man, look, because recipes are awesome, right? They 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 not only give you. A great meal but different places can have the exact same whatever it is you know what it, let's just say cake or bread because you love bread so much you can have a banana bread but if you take it to you know Scotland or you take it to uh, um, Haiti or you take it to you know, um, Brazil, that same banana bread could have just a few different extra ingredients and it is completely different, but it's because of where it comes from. So it's the same thing, but now you have that culture's extra little spice, extra little ingredient in there, which makes it completely different. Like I love banana banana nut muffins and everything, but everybody does not make banana nut muffins the same. <laughs> and I've gone to I've had different people, and I'm like, this no, I don't like your banana nut muffin. No, you did not do this right. <laughs> it's not to my liking, and it's you know, so it's it's awesome. Baking especially is full on witchcraft. There's no science here. You do it with your heart. You don't do it with your scales. And everyone's got their own spell. That's what these recipes are. <laughs> it really is. It it, it, it really is. I, I asked my mom if she had my grandmother's uh, cookbook and she was like, no, baby, that thing has gone. Somebody has it in the family. We just don't know who does. Somebody snatched that thing when she passed away and we cannot find it. And I was like, oh my God, I wish. Because... You know, grandmother always has her own way of making stuff. And it's just like, how did she do that? And be like, well, grandma, how did, okay, how do you, how do you do this? Well, you put some of this and you put some of that and you throw a little bit of this and you throw a little bit of that in and it's perfect. You're like, (laughs) those are no measurements. (laughs) You did not give me one measurement. You just gave me ingredients, just, just items (laughs) like, well, do it until it comes out right. <laughs> Keep working at it until it comes out correct. <laughs> until you get your spell down. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to master the spell. <laughs> There's no shortcuts here. Grandma's cookbook, that is full on, like, the family's heart of power. That is the grimoire of your family. And it's been squirreled away by one of the branches to hold onto it and covet that power. Yeah, okay. I'm I, I so upset about that. I am so, and my, mom, my mother is upset, too. She's like, I wish... I wish I had it, but oh well. I told you she had to come up with her own, and so she could pass it down to her grandkids. Oh. All right, let's let's try and cheer ourselves up with a tale of brutal sacrifice and revenge of a god. A killer beer. There's an old song that has survived as a part of the oral tradition. 
which relates to final harvests and death. If not exactly having a definitive version, it is commonly known as John Barleycorn is dead, or else John Barleycorn must die. To front load the topic, this is a song about the sacrifice and rebirth of a god of the crops and harvest. The tempo of a lot of the versions of this song feel more like that of a hymn, the tune as it is commonly known being a variant of Dives and Lazarus, considered a traditional Christmas song. It's pretty spectacular pagan for sure. In the 1500s, there's some debate over whether the variant Barleycorn songs are an incredible oral tradition handed down across the ages, or a strange fabrication that sprang up based on ideas found in it. Taking its it's a storified collection of traditional farming and harvest methods, up to and including human sacrifice to bless the fields, potentially even a wicker vampire, the likes of which the good non-bees movie of that name depicted. There's an end point to the narrative that a lot of scholars in the field of folk music point to as how the song endured across the centuries, if not millennia, and that is that the harvest leads to drinking. The instructions hidden under the surface go from the planting, to the harvesting, to the brewing of beer and brandies, making this an enduring drinking song. The beer can be read as the revenge of the god of the harvest, putting the people who sacrificed the deity into a rowdy stupor as a last laugh of the divine. There are an incredible amount of different versions of the song, something which lends credence to it being an oral tradition over a bored academic's pet project. A modern recording of that is the folk band Traffic from 1970, a version using the John Barleycorn Must Die name over Is Dead, giving it a bit more urgent agency rather than resignation of it having to happen. The song itself is well worth looking up, and I'm going to duck out of singing it right now, but we're looking at how John Barleycorn must die. They've hired men with scythes so sharp to cut him off at the knee, and there's all of this imagery of sharp pitchforks that pricked him in the heart. They've got to cut him skin from bone, and he's ground him between two stones. It's all like a big analogy of what you do to the crops, and it's just basically instructions, but it's through the filter of, here is a man we're going to brutally torture to death. So, you know, like... There wasn't internet back then, people made their own entertainment. At the end of it all, after the god was resurrected and killed and it was ground up, you've then got the drink, you've got the brandy in the glass, you've got the nut brown bowl, and the huntsman can't hunt without it, and the tinker can't mend a pot without a little barley corn, and the last laugh of the god is how dependent everyone is on him for the fact that they're the ones that struck him down and turned him into this food. It follows the broad strokes of the traditional parable that John Barleycorn must be sacrificed, dying and returning in a symbolic cycle of harvest. You get the horrific imagery of the implication of a person going through the reaping and sorting process, and then the final revenge in alcohol emerging at the end of the process. It's an interesting fit for Samhain, even if it was ultimately spun into being in the 1600s, because even should that be true, as some now suspect, it's still based on the folk traditions. There's harvesting, there's feasting, and horror. It's pretty perfect, all told. I wonder if it's overdue a revival as a Halloween song, actually. The first time I heard the song, actually I had to listen to it twice. Because the first time I heard it, I was like, what are they talking about? And I'm, and I'm looking at the imagery, and I'm like, <laughs> wait, is... This a what is what kind of song is this? This is a murder song. This is literally talking about murder. <laughs> and then I then I listen to it again. I'm like, barley. Okay, but once you break down what they're actually doing, it makes it so much easier to take because it's like, oh well, this is just how they made whatever they were making with it, uh, whether it be beer or wine or uh, not wine, but uh, beer or. Um, whiskey or whatever they were going to make with it and it's like oh well, that makes sense that that is how you would do it if uh you were you know way back then and looking it up i saw that the whole going around in a circle well carrying his body around in a circle and everything like that actually had something to do with the way they would harvest and because of wild animals coming into the fields and everything, they would harvest in a circle from the outside in and then be able to catch whatever 
wild beast may have uh, slipped its way in, and then they can also eat that wild beast with the uh, once they're you know with their dinner or uh, after they've completed their task of making the brew that they plan on making. I thought that was incredible, and if you like horror, you know why not take something as simple as making a, a beer <laughs> and turn it and turn it into something terrifying and but yeah that's 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 that was interesting for me that's all for this part of the pagan wheel of the year blessed sarwin happy halloween and welcome to the celtic new year everyone before signing off, huge thank you to Amon Mazingo, who, not knowing too much about the tradition behind the modern-day Halloween, got thrown into a Luke Law special on this subject. Would you like to tell everyone where they can find you? You can find me at AfroTalesCast everywhere. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can email me at AfroTalesPodcast at Yahoo.com. And I have another episode, which is interesting because it will be about either the rolling calf or Luke Guru, which is the Haitian werewolf <laughs> with origins in France. So interesting. <laughs> oh, there's so much going on with France. Like um, the Beast of Gévaudan is where we get the idea of silver killing werewolves. And it was entirely misconstrued because what happened in the original tale was it was melted down silver idols, so it was the religious thing that was supposed to kill it. And everyone went, nah, that's dumb. Silver! And then they, went, they just embraced <laughs> the old ideas of silver as be warding off evil. And they're like, the, wait, no, the church propaganda, come <laughs> <laughs> That's like, okay, so there's a Trinidad, so all over the Caribbean, you have different versions of the werewolf. But uh, in Haiti, it's called the Luke Guru. In Trinidad and Tobago, it's called Ligahu. And in Louisiana, because they're, they're French, it's called Rougarou, which is weird. And they have different ways of catching this, this, this thing. It's a shapeshifter that is a werewolf most times when you see it. And the way that they catch it, 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 the way they try to disrupt it, like in certain islands, they're like, no, nope, just don't even mess with it. You just leave it alone, let it do what it's going to do. Other ones are like, no, we got to get rid of it. We're going to catch it. And it's like, <laughs> none of them use silver. <laughs> Nobody uses silver <laughs> at all. And I'm like, why aren't you using silver? And I prodded you on this before in our preamble. You have a chef recipe for us. Yes, I will have a chef chef recipe for you guys uh i will be sending it to you a chef a chef is going to send you a personal recipe himself so be on the lookout for that luke law is a ghost story guys production if you do want to contact me there's the show's dedicated email luke law gsg at gmail and the general show email ghoststoryguys at gmail.com both myself and the main show are really easy to find on Facebook and Twitter if you want to make day-to-day -day contact, as well as a very active Instagram account that a lot of the community gets involved with. If you want to support the show directly, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. We do have Luke Law merchandise available at the Ghost Story Guys online store. Feel very free to show off any you get online. Just recently we want to push to promote Luke Law more, and the dedicated Facebook group for the show is now live if you want to come join us over there. As ever, though, the absolute best thing anyone can do to support the show is to give it a listen. Share this around if you think you may know someone who might be interested, leave a review if you get the chance to help signal boost me, and most of all, I simply hope you enjoy what I'm doing here. Hello, Luke. I have a wonderful recipe that I have found on the recipes or the Pagan Soul webpage just for you and your friends on Look Law. Today we will be creating pumpkin cider bread since you love making bread so much. What will you need for the recipe? Two cups pureed pumpkin, one tablespoon cinnamon, 
two tablespoons sugar, one tablespoon nutmeg, two cups of flour, and then enough to make the consistency just right. Two tablespoons of dry yeast dissolved in half a cup of warm water. One tablespoon of salt, two tablespoons of vegetable oil, a third to half a cup of molasses, and two cups of fresh cider. Now, how do we put this together? Easy. Combine the cinnamon, sugar, and nutmeg with the pureed pumpkin. Combine the salt and two cups of flour. Add the cider, yeast mix, and all other ingredients. Add more flour if necessary. Pour the dough into a slightly greased bowl. Cover it with a cloth or plastic wrap and let it rise for about 45 minutes until it is doubled in size in a warm place. Punch down the dough and turn it out onto a floured surface. Roll the dough into a long strip and then roll it up jelly roll style to fit in the bread pan. Place in a greased pan and let rise until doubled again. Bake at 400 degrees Fahrenheit for 50 to 60 minutes until brown and done when a fork comes out clean. And that is it my friend. A wonderful bread recipe for you and your friends. Okay, until I have another recipe for you, Luke, please, as always, enjoy. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.